it's one thing to have a level of trust that is born out of 40 years of friendship. It's another thing to allow the other person to be exactly who they need to be in that moment. Being a leader is an opportunity to grow the hell up, right? To quote from my own book. It's the opportunity to look at the monsters that you speak to, to look at the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to look at. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. One of my five-year-old's favorite books is The Missing Piece Meets the Big O by Shel Silverstein. Whenever I see her running towards me with that gray book in hand at bedtime, I feel a relief and excitement. It's not only a break from some frankly questionable and boring stories that we read, but it's also one that is deeply moving and profound. Now, for those who don't know, in the book, Silverstein tells the story of a little wedge that longs to find a big circle it can't complete in the hopes that together the two of them will become a whole O. The wedge is so eager to find wholeness in another that it's constantly reaching for situations that aren't right, constantly looking to fit in holes it won't fit. And in the end, the wedge doesn't find wholeness by filling the hole of another, but indeed by becoming its own big O in the presence of another. Or put more directly, the wedge becomes whole itself in the love and encouragement of another whole O. Rilke once said, but once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people, infinite distances exist, a marvelous living side by side can grow up for them if they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. When I look at the most important and profound relationships in my life, from my marriage to even my 15-year partnership with Jerry, I see the same thing, a loving respect and appreciation for the expanse and distance between us. It's not just an embrace of the commonalities and agreements, but actually an embrace of the distances and disagreements. For it's in the distance the acknowledgement of the differences, the allowing of the distance, a strong relationship container is forged. This is where trust is born and nourished. In the presence of this container, we have the opportunity to do our work, to round out our edges, to find and express our wholeness. This is where we become the big O. In their nearly 40 years of friendship and partnership, Dave Jilk and Brad Feld know well the container of a strong relationship. They joined Jerry on the podcast to discuss their latest book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors. But they also share the journey together and how the respect and love for the distance between them help forge a lifelong and profound partnership and friendship. Enjoy. Conflict is normal, and it's a healthy part of any relationship. Having conflict with your co-founder is not a sign of failure. What matters most is how we acknowledge and move through conflict that can make or break our teams and companies. At Reboot, we've developed a free email course full of lessons and exercises that will bring understanding, alignment, efficiency, and satisfaction to your co-founder relationship. Over the course of five days, you and your fellow co-founders will discover the three most common types of conflict, explore the art of communication, 
and gain valuable practical skills for navigating and preventing conflict in the future. To learn more and register for the Co-Founder Reboot course, head to reboot.io slash co-founder reboot. We hope you find this work nourishing and positively life-changing for you, your co-founders, and your organizations. Brad, Dave, hi. Jerry. Hey, Jerry. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Brad, I think this is what, your fifth or sixth or I don't know. It's like uh, every now and then we do a Brad visit to the Reboot Podcast. I'm happy to do an infinite number of Jerry things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to have us come together. You know, um, our relationship, you know, folks know that Brad and I have a long-term relationship. They may not know so much that Dave and Brad have um, a much longer relationship that stretches back to college. And uh, Dave and I have had a relationship. How long have we known each other, Dave? Maybe 10 years? Oh, it's longer than that. Remember, we were on Owen's board together. Um, oh, my God. That's right. Owen Davis. Back in the dot-com days. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. So a long, long time here. And this is the first time we're having this kind of a conversation. And what really sparked this is the release of uh, your new book which is the Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors. And I'm stoked about having this conversation. And the first question I really wanna uh, just dive in on is, and I know you've spent some time on this question in the book, but I wanna give you a chance to sort of talk about it. Nietzsche, like what are you thinking there? Yeah, so um, it's an interesting progression. I mean, I, I, to keep it short, um, I had, I had, uh, developed an interest in philosophy and my interest had, had skewed, uh, not this won't surprise you, Jerry, and my interest had skewed toward the more analytical, um, or more terminologically correct analytic philosophy, uh, kind of the, the American style of philosophy of, of, uh, you know, very logical, logically oriented, um, very, kind of rigid. Um, and you, I thought that maybe, I know. I know. And I thought maybe I should branch out a little bit. So I got the, um, the, the teaching company's course on Nietzsche and started watching it. And, and I was just struck by it and, and took an interest in it. And, and, and at some point realized that unlike other uh, analytic philosophy, continental philosophy and Nietzsche um, seemed to speak more to living life than mm -hmm. to technical questions. So both things are interesting for perhaps different reasons. And, and so, uh, I started reading Nietzsche, uh, you know, beyond the course, I started reading Nietzsche and, and, um, there, there is actually a story that Brad and I tell that, that is our best recollection of what happened, which is that, uh, we were both in, um, uh, in Keystone and, um, uh, I was reading something. It wasn't actually Nietzsche. It was a book about Nietzsche and, um, but it had a lot of quotes. And I, I, I read this thing to Brad and I said, doesn't that sound a lot like entrepreneurship? And he kind of looks up from his book and he's like, yeah, it kind of does. And that was that, but, uh, that was the germ of the idea. Um, and as I, and now that I had noticed that I continued to read and noticed that there were a lot of things that sounded like my experience in entrepreneurship. 
And I want to just sort of place this in time a little bit because we didn't really do a deep dive introduction on either of you guys, but we'll get to that. This was after, was this after you were an entrepreneur, Dave, or after your last founding company or was it, place it in time for me. I think I was still running standing cloud at the time. Uh, I don't, I don't think it was, uh, I don't think it was after that, that would, that, that we sold standing cloud in 2013. It's about eight years ago. I think it was a little before that. So, you know, it, it, the idea germinated for a few years before we started to write the book for sure. So when, and if I remember correctly, you were a founder at standing cloud and then you were the CEO for a number of years. Is that right? Correct. That's correct. Right. right. So it was, it was, you were in it is my point. You were oh, in, in the stew. Absolutely. And so it was, you know, the, the experience of reading Nietzsche while I was doing it certainly was part of it. Right. It wasn't, it, had I been a few years done already, I might not have, um, I might have not have made the connections because they weren't, uh, they weren't living questions for me, at, you know, afterwards as much. Right. But while I was in it for sure, a lot of these things, and, you know, I, as you know, uh, as, as my coach for some time, uh, during that period, uh, you know, I was, there were some things I was really struggling with. And so, um, you know, some, some of these, uh, some of these ideas helped me think through answers or at least partial answers. You know, I think that's really the point that I was reading, you know, as I was rereading the book this past weekend, I was remembering some of our conversations back then and the things that you would struggle with. And, um, you know, Brad, I want to bring you into the conversation a little bit. Remember what our friend Dave was going through? Well, I remember it quite well because I was on the board and I would say my you know, my relationship with Dave, which now goes back, uh, Dave corrected me recently. I said 30 years, but it sounds like uh, it's what, 37 years or something? 37, 30. Oh, it'd be 30, 38 now. Yeah. Which, which completely breaks my mind, by the way, like the idea of being, you know, being best friends with somebody for 38 years is, is both delightful and terrifying. And Dave was a founder, but we really talked about the company even before it was founded. So, you know, my engagement with Dave as an investor was not Dave coming to me, pitching me on a company, but us talking about this thing that Dave then became motivated to go start. And I provided the financing for, and I had worked with Dave on multiple companies and, and, you know, including ours where we were the co-founders, but also where I was an investor. So I, you know, I knew Dave really, really well in terms of, his own proclivities as a founder and a leader, strengths and weaknesses, at least from my frame of reference, some of my perspectives, I'm sure were not necessarily 100% correct, but I had my perspective on it. But I also was even more deeply cared about Dave as a person than I cared about Dave as a CEO and a founder. And um, my view of Dave as a CEO and a founder, which by the way, is not dissimilar to how I approach a lot of the relationships that I developed with other founders and some of the people that I've, I've funded was while there was a very, very strong desire for the business to be highly successful and for it to be, you know, a significant, large, fast growing business. I, I probably had more interest in the working relationship 
and the opportunity to try to create something from nothing, from an idea, than I did about the specific outcome and characteristics of what was going on. So, you know, our, our, our personal relationship or our friendship had incredible depth to at least, you know, even in that time period, separate from the business. Once, once the business went from that, you know, that, that very beginning organic phase where, you know, like you have money, you're working on an idea that nothing's at stake yet. You're, you're, you're still playing with this, whatever the beginning is. And as it transitioned from that into a business with people, a product, a market focus, an effort to start to scale, and you could start to define whether you are having or not having success on the path. Um, I, I was in the struggle with Dave, not on a daily basis, but I had a lot of awareness of the ups and downs that Dave was having as my friend layered against the backdrop of the normal ups and downs in the struggle of the business. So uh, I wouldn't say that I was in any of it with Dave because it was just one of multiple companies that I was an investor and on the board of. But at a personal level, I saw the up and down. I saw the stress. I saw the anguish. I saw the frustration. And there's a couple of very specific moments that I remember really, really well um, that were different, different moments of uh, of that struggle that uh, that Dave had. And for me, I had to separate my brain into two halves whenever I responded to any of them. One half was, you know, Dave, the CEO of this company, and the other was Dave, my close friend. Yeah, I want to jump in on, on that point because I think that um, this is what I was sort of pulling together. You know, I think I, I was remembering some things in our, in our conversations, Dave. And I want to note that because I know a little bit about the history between the two of you, I know what Dave has been to you, Brad, in terms of your struggles and where he has been. So I want to circle back to that. But I want to read to you uh, a, a quote from the early, early on in the book and Dave, um, you know, if the, if I'm not pulling the narrative together properly, correct me on this. So your CEO at standing cloud, it, you know, it's having its experience, right? Some wins, some losses, some struggles, some challenges, and you're exploring, you're starting to seek answers and knowing you as I do, you seek answers a lot. So this is from your book. Even great success often requires that you first experience great pain. This is one of Nietzsche's core principles and is quite common in entrepreneurship. Many successful entrepreneurs have failed at least once. Many great companies have gone through a period during which their viability was in question. Let's skip ahead. We think about our actions and make course corrections, but are unlikely to question our basic premises. Why fix what ain't broke? We dig deep when things are going badly or when we are feeling pain. This may mean looking at the fundamental assumptions of the business or looking at your own psychology and facing up to some dark truths about your, our own behavior. If you find yourself at a low point, you have the opportunity to completely restructure your thinking. If you are at a low point, this notion serves as both consolation and guidance. 
I'm going to draw an implication that could be completely wrong. But I'm curious if there's a correlation between the low points that you experience at Standing Cloud and reaching out to Nietzsche. Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion to draw. I don't know that Standing Cloud was only the last, only the final in a series of entrepreneurial endeavors that I'd had. It's, it wasn't my only company that I started. In fact, it was one of many. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I like to say that there are two kinds of serial entrepreneurs, those who, those who succeed fairly early on in their first or second one um, uh, do really well and love it um, partly because of that. And they just don't have any, there's, and there's, there's nothing else they can imagine doing that they would, that they would enjoy as much. The other is those who haven't succeeded yet and are trying to get there. <laughs> and I was the latter. And, uh, uh, you know, so I was, I, I continued to do it. It's what I, you know, starting companies is what I knew how to do. Um, and I had had my share of frustrations in all of these companies and of various kinds, some similar, some not, um, you know, when we went into standing cloud, um, and I was going to comment, uh, Brad, that, uh, I don't know if you recall that the genesis of it was when we hiked Quandary Peak together, um, which is one of Colorado's 14ers for your audience. And uh, uh, if you know Nietzsche, that's a very Nietzschean sort of um, way to have an idea uh, on, a, on, a, on a hike on a mountain. And um, I'm pretty sure during that first conversation, I said pretty directly, you know, if we do this, I don't want to run it. I'll, I'll run it to start with, but I don't want to run it. And I, I realized by this point that I, though, uh, you know, varying assessments of my abilities as a CEO, but I'm not an organizational leader. It's not really my, it's not really my str uh, strength. And um, uh, I knew that I didn't want to run it. And so, you know, we, 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 we went through that path where uh, I ran it for eight or nine months. We brought on a CEO uh, to run it going forward, I, I believe with another round of funding and that didn't work out. So we were faced with a very difficult choice of, you know, well, should I do this again, even though it's not really what I love doing that, that at not the company, but the role in the company. Uh, should I, should I take that back? Brad was very clear. He wasn't going to bring on another CEO that we were either done or I was going to do it. And which I think was, you know, uh, wise. Um, and, uh, I decided to go for it anyway. And, um, you know, that, that, that was where all of these conflicts came from in terms of what you and I talked about in coaching was I, I knew I shouldn't be doing this, but on the other hand, that was kind of, that was kind of the, the rock and the hard place I was between in the entrepreneurial role. So back to your question about did Nietzsche, um, what was reading Nietzsche part of this? Absolutely. But I think it was it was part of a longer train of things on both sides of the equation, on both the the, uh, the struggles that I had had in entrepreneurship, whatever else was going on in my life, which I'm you know I'm sure there were other things, um, uh, and uh, and wanting to learn more about how how uh, somebody somebody heavyweight really thought about how to live. What I'm hearing is, and and I and I'm. I'm brought back to some of our coaching conversations, you know, especially around this, the, the, this notion of being conflicted about whether or not you wanted to take, stay in the position. And, and, um, you know, I, as I'm recalling it, there was even a sense of obligation that you felt, you know, um, 
And yet there was also conflict about whether or not, and I think you, you correctly asserted yourself, uh, described yourself as, as there are things that you were good at and things that you are not as good at. And starting is something that you're good at. And, you know, over time it became more difficult to be the guy who sort of manages, you know, large group of people and sort of navigate all of that space. Um, what I'm struck by in the passage is the, um, there's an invo invocation, if you will, to use this. This may mean looking at the fundamental assumptions of the business or looking at your own psychology. And you both know me well enough to know that I'm a big fan of people looking at their own psychology and looking at their own experience and facing up to some dark truths about your own behavior. What did you learn? about yourself, Dave, during that time period? Oh, many things. But um, I actually think I actually think that um, I certainly solidified uh, the view that I had had about being an organizational leader. I, 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 um, I think I characterized some of that in the chapter in which for which I have an, uh, the narrative. Uh, in other mm -hmm. words, you know, each chapter being a quote and an essay and a narrative, or some, many of them have a narrative, and I contributed one narrative. Um, and just this this conflict between, well, how do how do I do this? Um, how hard do I press people? Um, and uh, you know, um, I think I think uh, some of that has been reflected in. Um, my uh, my direction since uh, selling standing cloud, which will, is that I have mostly resisted uh, work uh, working with organizations or in organizations. Well, I've really entirely resisted working in organizations, and and um, uh, you know whenever I'm working with others, it's a uh, it's a it's a warning signal, right? Do, do I really want to work with somebody else, or do I want to just do my own thing? And um, that has been an interesting exploration, right? That the opportunity to go off and do something different, really, that was the most important thing about doing something different was I, I really need to stop doing this. Um, and, you know, fortunately, for reasons other than standing cloud, I was able to do so uh, economically. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, that was a challenge, even working with one other person who I've worked with closely and effectively for 30 years. Right. And so, so, you know, the, the, the questioning of the assumption, do I want to be working with other people at all? Uh, is there, is a really interesting one, right? Um, there are other chapters in the book, by the way, that, that, that get at this right there. There's this, um, you know, uh, it's just easier before you have customers and employees and, and, uh, you know, I just want to do this on my own. I want to have a one person business, right? That's not what I want to do Dave. what Dave wants to do, but some people that actually is the right thing for them to do, right? Having a, having a one person business that they run online and don't really ever have to work with other people and their customer, you know, customer service is all email and, that's the right kind of business for some people. And, and these are issues that you must think through, I think, as an entrepreneur. And I, and, and I think I did. It, it reminds me of my good friend, Steve Kane, whose original business plan for uh, Gamesville, which was a bingo site that I funded when I was a venture capitalist, uh, was originally called Nineco. No, no inventory, no employees, cash only. Um, and, uh, his choice at the time was either bingo games or parking lots. 
And, uh, you know, he chose, fortunately for me, he chose bingo games, but, uh, but I, you know, I think that that's one of those moments, you know, in addition to encouraging people to look at their own psychology, I, AKA what I refer to as radical self-inquiry, one of the theories that I work with all the time is that the experience of being an entrepreneur, the experience of being a leader actually gives us an opportunity to do precisely what you did, Dave, which was to really look at yourself honestly, to look at the, not the delusion that you carry about yourself of who am I supposed to be for whatever reasons, either because you're living up to somebody's in projection of who you're supposed to be or an internalized projection. But to say to yourself, who am I supposed to be? Even with the added pressure, and I, I'm going to go to the relationship between the two of you now, even, even with the added pressure of, I could lose my friend's money. Now, God love Brad Feld, he's fine. Okay, he's had enough success that it's fine. But um, it's remarkable and notable that you also have this sort of backdrop of this friendship. And Brad, you know, in some ways, you kind of put pressure on Dave, said, look, you know, uh, if you don't come back in and take this role as CEO again, we're out of here. Tell, tell me what, what that experience was like for you guys. Yeah, Brad. Yeah, I'm happy to start with that because I think, um, I, I think my goal with how I approached that was, um, was simple and, uh, but, it, but it was clearly simple from my frame of reference versus simple from Dave's frame of reference. Um, it's long enough in the past where I don't remember the exact conversations, but the, uh, having been through this multiple times, my view was I did not want to make the decision whether or not we shut the company down. We'd hired the CEO. It hadn't worked. That was a, you know, a collective. It didn't work. It wasn't anybody's fault. It just didn't work. The business was at a state where it needed more money. And I was willing to invest more money in the company. I still believed in the initial premise of the business. I still believed in the potential for it to turn into something interesting. I still very much trusted and believed in uh, Dave and the people that he was, you know, assembling and his ability, if he was interested in taking on uh, the sort of effort to turn this into something interesting. But I also didn't feel the need for him to do that. It was totally fine with me to lose the money we'd invested at that point and to call it a day and move on um, from a financial investor perspective. There was no need to continue the business. And in the context of there being no need to continue the business, I really wanted it to be Dave's choice as to whether we continued the business or not. In that context, my view was, a constraint-based view, which is in some ways, I probably would have been, I probably would have preferred to not continue the business, but I was unwilling to be the one that made that decision. That was really the founder decision and that was really Dave's decision. And from that perspective, I wanted to make it a relatively simple decision for me. And in some ways, 
clarify the decision for Dave? Because it's kind of easy to say for an investor to say, okay, we'll put more money in this thing. We'll defer sort of dealing with whatever the reality is. Okay. We need to go find a new CEO. That'll take us some time. Um, so more time will pass and maybe the new CEO will work or won't work. And that new CEO will take time to ramp up, but it was still so early as a business that that wasn't really in my own experience, a particularly effective or logical path. It could work, but it was a low probability work. And what I wanted to do was have a higher probability of success, but also recognize that the probability of failure was still meaningful because it was an early company. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to jump in here, Brad. As you often do, you're describing a, a complex decision point against a framework of, because I know you so well, a set of values that you have. You use the phrase, it's a founder's decision. And, and, and I've seen you over the years both choose to invest further in companies that are struggling and choose not to invest, which is a responsible way to approach this. But I'm going to point out a variable here that I know you've done before because you've backed friends before, but, but this is a guy in Dave who I know from your stories when you were in the depths of your depression, this is the guy who came to you and showed up and held you, held you when you were nearly paralyzed with depression. You know, he, he's going to be uncomfortable. Dave's going to be uncomfortable for me calling it out, but too bad. You're going to have to deal with it. You're actually a nice guy. He's the guy who would interrupt you when you would be in your most obsessive states. And he was there with you. And you actually have to make a choice about whether or not you're funding Dave. How, how do you navigate that? Well, I think the way you set it up is really important because I, I do think in those moments, um, I contemplated some of that, but I didn't let that dominate. So it wasn't that there was no contemplation of that but it was also not the other end of the spectrum where it was, all right, I need to, I need to make my decision as an investor in a way that is most accommodating to my relationship with Dave. Mm -hmm. But it also wasn't the case that I was thinking about it from the standpoint of, I need to uh, make my decision in absence of that relationship. And I'll tell a short story that is from, Felt Technologies from our first business, which is part of why that was my frame of reference, which is not, it was the founder's decision that's my default, but that I wanted to set up from my perspective, a series of acceptable paths, but let Dave ultimately choose the acceptable path from his perspective or the path he wanted to pursue. I don't, I don't remember when in, in our business this was, but it was not at the beginning. It was kind of mid stage of our business. So I'm going to guess we probably had a million dollar company at this point. We were making money. We had employees, we were having our ups and downs and we had plenty of conflict as, 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 as co-founders, 
I would say we were very good at resolving the conflict. The conflict didn't linger. You know, when it would appear, one of us would observe that the other was unhappy uh, with with what was going on, and we we deal with it. And they weren't explosive conflicts. They were, you know, let's sit down and let's spend some time and talk about it. We were joking recently. We used to have a, a Japanese restaurant around the corner, and my mental model that I remember is whenever we had one of these conflicts, we'd go to Nara, and we'd have sushi and we'd have beer and we would sort of talk it out until we got to the end result. And in this particular moment that I'm remembering, I knew Dave was really, really annoyed with me. And it it was persistent. I couldn't figure out why he was annoyed, but it was persistent. Um, And it had, it was an annoyance that was building over several events over a period of time. And I don't remember whether we went to Nahara or we talked about it somewhere else, but I basically said, you know, what's going on? Like, why are you so annoyed with me? And in a very direct way, Dave said some equivalent to working with you is like starting by reading the last page of the mystery novel first (laughs) is, you know, you tell me what the answer is. And as a very first starting point, and I want to go then do the work and discover the answer. Like I'm interested in the process to discover the answer. I'm not only interested in the answer. And so then I go spend a bunch of time looking for the answer. And most of the time, the answer you started with was the answer that I realize is the best answer. And that's very frustrating in a certain domain of problem space, like in certain problems, like go, go tell the answer all day long on that. Like, I don't, I don't want to go discover that answer. I'm happy to have you discover that answer, but this is my domain. These are the answers I want to go discover because I enjoy the process. That's powerful and meaningful to me in terms of my own experience and learning. And we talked about that. And I realized that I was really being unhelpful. And it wasn't just with Dave. It was in other contexts where, you know, allowing the other person to get to a conclusion on their own was something that I needed to create space for. And I'll, I'll tie it to a CEO today, independent of my and Dave's relationship, something I see all the time is especially true, by the way, with, with engineering uh, or product-based leadership, which is when the person who is not responsible for doing the thing says, this is when it must be done by, and this is how I want you to do it the person then who has to do the work, it's not their, it's not their schedule. It's not, they they did not make the commitment to it. They now feel an obligation to try to satisfy somebody else's dictum. And as an engineering leader, that's a very ineffective way from, from my own experience to be a leader. You know, if if you tell your, uh, if you're the VP of engineering and you tell one of your teams, I need this by Friday as the starting point, it's not, they're not telling you, Hey, we'll get you this by Friday. And so the idea that they're going to have to do all the work and they're going to stay up all night, making sure they get it to you by Friday has been imposed on them versus them deciding it's something they want to go after. So I, I had, I had that. And I, again, it's structurally for me, my view was, I know that this is a hard situation. I know that this is a real decision. I know that Dave, I believe Dave is going to want to make his own determination as to which path to go down versus me make the determination. I trust him that if he wants me to make the determination, he will come back to me and say, you know what, 
you tell me what you want to do. But if it was unbounded where I'm like, hey, whatever, that wouldn't actually be that helpful because we would likely in this case where it was unbounded, it's like, okay, whatever, here's some more money, go do whatever you want to do. In some ways that was even worse because it didn't put any constraints on the problem to make it a solvable problem. Uh, I want to bring Dave back into this and get his perspective on that story and, and the conclusion. So um, by way of background, uh, I have a few things to say about this. So by way of background, uh, a story back again into the dot-com days. Um, for a period of time, I actually, uh, when I first moved to Colorado, I worked for Brad as an employee at, at uh, SoftBank Venture Capital, which became Mobius. I was, he was a partner. I was a, I was a, an associate, um, and uh, you know, Brad and I had a good work, working relationship. And one day, I said to him, I remember standing in the parking lot, and, and I, I remember the moment, and I said to him, you know, I think you take too long to fire CEOs. <laughs> and I'm sure it was in the context of some particular company, but you know, we'd, we'd seen these things before, and. Um, you know, I was probably working with one of these companies where it was just a disaster. And uh, and Brad got this very, very thoughtful look on his face. Like he, he understood what I was saying, um, presumably had thought about it before. And he, he said, yeah, I think you're right. But what I've found is that it doesn't usually work out anyway. So when that happens, so um, I figure I'll, I figure I'll give it more time. So the reason I tell that story is it's sort of relevant tech, uh, substantively, but it's also, it's also relevant in the kinds of understandings that Brad and I had. And one of the reasons we were able to write this book together is that um, you know, we don't have very similar styles. We have very different styles. And we don't agree on everything philosophically, but kind of for the most part, our philosophy of business is very similar. And I don't think it's just that it co-developed. It's also that we just kind of came to very similar conclusions about what the right things to do are. And again, I don't want to overstate how much concordance there is, but it's, it's, it's striking. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, how, how similar are kind of assumptions about what's good and bad, what works, what doesn't are. Um, and so at the time when this happened uh, at Standing Cloud, um, when I was faced with that decision, when, when, when Brad said, hey, and I, I don't remember the conversation either, it may not have been that abrupt or direct, but that was the basic choice that I had. I kind of already knew that that was the right choice, right? I mean, I didn't think we should go try to find another CEO. That was gonna, that was gonna be, be just another waste of money. Um, that clearly wasn't going to work. And, you know, to whatever extent I was the problem, by the way, in that, in that uh, interaction, that was an issue. Uh, in other words, we bring on another CEO and it might be that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, having me in that uh, subordinate position didn't work that well. I, you know, I don't think that's what's going on, but surely it was part of it. Um, so I already knew that choice that Brad was presenting me with. That wasn't really big news to me or some shock. But there's another really important thing uh, here, which is that uh, I'm asserting this, I don't really know, but I think Brad knows me well enough that he, he knows that I wouldn't have wanted him to make any decisions or present me with anything like that because we were 
close friends because I had helped them out in the past in this way. Like right. this wasn't, this wasn't a friendship decision, right? This was a, this was a business decision. It was a financial decision. It was a entrepreneurship decision. And, uh, you know, by, by not just shutting it down right away, he was already according me respect their friendship, right? By even giving me a choice. I don't know what he would have done if it was a, a guy he didn't know or didn't like or whatever and, and had, had other troubles with. Um, you know, it might have been, yeah, I think we're done. And so we're already there. I wouldn't have wanted him to, and I think he knows that I wouldn't have wanted him to kind of do me further favors, you know. Um uh, uh that's not the kind of relationship we had when we were working when we we're working together professionally. It was a, that was part of our friendship too, right? Is that is that we knew that when we were working together professionally, that we trusted each other not to just do stuff because we're friends. Yeah, I'm glad you brought in the word trust, Dave, because that's actually what I'm seeing so clearly between the two of you. You trust each other enough to profoundly disagree if you need to. You trust each other enough to know in advance the best way to navigate this rel relatively complex relationship, you know, but there's also a fierce truth telling that I see that you do with each other. And at times, you know, it may generate some tension, but I actually think that that links back to the trust. It's like, um, I know you both well enough to know that Dave, if you said back off, stop giving me the answer, it would come from a place of a kind of non-defensive stance, but a kind of like, you can trust that that's actually going to be heard. Even if you have to say it two or three times, you know, and what part of what I'm extrapolating here is, uh, really perhaps, and I don't want to put you guys on a pedestal in any stretch of the imagination, but there is a, there is a little bit of a guide path here for how to navigate a very complex, well, potentially complex situation, which is we're two friends. We're going to go into business together and there are these differences. There's a power differential that can show up that you navigate well. And it may or may not come to pass the way you want it to come to pass, but you can still, all these years later, you're still friends. Well, it's, I think it's important to uh, characterize the trust, what the trust was and mm -hmm. carefully, because it, it, I don't think in our relationship that the trust is that, um, that if I, if I uh, were to say something or complain about it or vice versa, um, that, there would be a response to that directly um, that was what was desired. In other words, if I say, Brad, I want you to you know, do this or that, that's not the trust. Um, the trust is that if I say something like that sincerely, that he would take it seriously and think about it. In other words, that we we have an adult adult relationship that it's not and 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 it and that it's and that it's um uh and that it's taken seriously, not kind of yeah, I don't really have time to worry about that. I don't care that much. It's not important to me. So whatever, which is what I see in a lot of entrepreneur relationships, and of course, Brad, 
you know, has a lot more examples of these kinds of things. But, um, you know, when I'm mentoring or advising companies, I see a lot of kind of, it's not, it's not so much just that they're in it for themselves only, but rather that they, they're not, they don't even seem to be capable of kind of thinking about the relationship as an aspect of it. It's just kind of, uh, in the way. Um, and so that's the, that's the trust that I think helped us so much as partners in a business and as colleagues working together in a variety of capacities and in a variety of things, right. Is that, that we, we take the, the point of view of the other seriously and, and listen and think about it. And then if we disagree, we say we disagree. We don't just kind of passive aggressively, you know, do our own thing anyway. Right. It's, um, and you know, you know, you know, Brad, he'll tell you if he disagrees, it's not really like an issue. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. Right. I was and just so, going to say, Dave, you were exactly yeah. the same way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that, you know, that, that works. I mean, being, being open about that, but the trust is that that's going to happen. Not that it's going to, not that it, not that Brad's going to come around and, you know, see it my way or anything like that. I don't expect that but he does, uh, he does take it seriously. And I, I hope that I do the same. Well, I, I've written a bunch of books now. I am a very inconsistent and flaky writer. Yeah. Um, I write a lot. I write episodically. So it's very, it's very lumpy. It's not like every day I sit down for three hours and do my writing. I have a lot of things that distract me. I'm extraordinarily good at one of the writer's gifts, which is procrastination. It's called ABW, anything but writing. Anything but writing. <laughs> I'm very good at preparing to write. That's very different than how Dave approaches a project. He's very disciplined. He's very focused. He's, you know, he, he makes time for it and off he goes. And part of what I did was I did a lot of editing versus rewriting. I added a few things and I did a few things, but at that point I was being the annoying editor hmm. of hmm. the well-written work that was getting tuned up a little bit. And one of the things that we disagree on in terms of the editing style is the use of commas. <laughs> I think you did that on my book too. We just, we just it's a, just a different style. And by the way, I think grammatically, probably both styles are valid, you know, with, with tone, but we just disagreed. And I was changing commas left and right. And at some point it became no more fucking changes to the commas. And for me, it was, I kind of looked at it and I'm like, you know what? this is marginal improvement of something that may be actually marginal disimprovement. I may be making it worse by the changes I'm making. And, and clearly I'm aggravating the shit out of Dave with this level of pedantic, uh, you know, changing, what am I doing? Right. And so again, the trust that when he says, said to me, no more fucking commas, my reaction wasn't to actually care about the commas but to be tuned into the fact that I was now doing something that was truly not helpful in our collaboration mm -hmm. because of my own proclivities, nothing to do with Dave. Right. So, so the back and forth of that dynamic, this is the adult adult relationship comment. I think that Dave makes is, is it's not a game that we're playing with each other. It's just, you know, it, there's some point where my different style starts to crunch on his boundaries or his different style starts to crunch on my boundaries. 
And I think we're both quite good at saying to the other, you know what, enough. And, and, that, and, and it's like, oh, got it. And, mm-hmm. and on to the next thing. My meta on that though, was, was the, the notion of us knowing the other's boundary and being comfortable when the other says, you've crossed my boundary. Right, your your different style is now hurting me or hurting what we're doing together. Um, when when one of us hears that from the other, we listen. This is the trust. This is what I think Dave was saying, and I was just trying to make another example of it, maybe ham-handedly. It's when I hear it from Dave, I don't react to it. I'm like, I trust that he is expressing a real feeling, and I think about it, and I realize that I am treading on a boundary. The inverse is true too, right? When there is something that Dave does that it bothers him to me, he doesn't have to wonder whether he's crossed a boundary or not. He trusts that if he has, I will make a comment about it. You know, um, I'll bring in my, uh, my favorite German philosopher, um, a poet, and start to wrap us with this. What I see beyond the trust here is something that Rilke uh, refers to in one of my favorite passages from Letters to a Young Poet, in which he's advising the young poet who's written to him about the difficulty of relationship. And he says, broadly speaking, to love one another is the most difficult of all things. And that his uh, advice and counsel is to try to see the other as this expansive being against an immense sky. I love that phrase, the immense sky. And, you know, it's one thing to have a level of trust that is born out of 37, 40, almost 40 years, guys, 40 years of friendship. It's another thing to allow the other person to be exactly who they need to be in that moment. You know, whether it's backing off, giving the answer to the puzzle or allowing comma choices or allowing someone like Dave to go through the learning edge experience of actually figuring out how to be CEO. Because if I'm right, and you know, I am, um, being a leader is an opportunity to grow the hell up, right? To quote from my own book, it's the opportunity to, to, to look at the monsters that you speak to, that Nietzsche speaks to to look at the parts of ourselves that we really don't want to look at. And in order for that to happen, you need a container that I think you created for each other over the course of these 35 years. Yeah. You go do your thing. And I'm sure it wasn't always that way. And I'm sure there were bumps and hassles, but I think that's what you learned with each other is the ability to see each other and let each other be against that immense sky and have your own experience and trust that the other person is not going to drop you and leave you. This is very powerful. I think that, you know, part of the elder wisdom and all of a sudden it just occurs to me that we're all a bunch of elders. We're all just sitting around, right. Talking about it from that stance it, it go, does go beyond don't sweat the small stuff, but to notice our own reactions, notice our own pro- proclivity to tell, to fix, to, um, 
you know, set straight to somehow not intentionally diminish the other person, but to actually, but that's the, that's the, that's the effect of it. And I, and I see in this collaboration, even the latest entrepreneurial endeavor being the book, this collaboration of allowing each other to actually go about it in the way that actually is in service to them and trusting that the book's going to get done and the book got done. I want to thank you both. I really appreciate your um, joining in the conversation today. I found the book incredibly helpful and thought provoking. Thanks, Jerry. That actually means a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcasts to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work you can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, offsite retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings.